Hi, my name is Ben Andrews. I'm from Christ Community Health Services, uh, and thank you for joining this, uh, this session. Uh, we're going to be talking about HIV and the, the similarities and differences uh, between Southern Africa and the Southern U.S. Um, first, I'll start with a, a scripture passage. Uh, this verse is not my favorite verse. Um, this, this verse uh, has always made me a little uncomfortable. Uh, when Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And this is the King James Version, or New, New King James. And the reason I have never really felt comfortable with this verse and, and really don't like it is because I do not know anyone who wants to be looked at as the least of these. Now, when Jesus was talking about it, he is talking about this uh, for our benefit, right? He's talking about this so that we will not look down on those individuals. But when I say this verse, it automatically, you know, if I read this out and refer to someone as the least of these, I'm already setting, you know, setting a differential. Uh, I do not know anyone that wants to be referred to as the least of these. Um, why I loved it when I found the, the, the message translation. Whenever you did one of these things to someone overlooked or ignored, that was me. You did it to me. And I have so many patients living with HIV who have been overlooked, ignored, marginalized, um, whether it was my patients in Zambia or my patients in, in Memphis or Houston or Atlanta. Um, and so this, you know, this uh, talk is dedicated to those uh, people living with HIV who have been overlooked, ignored or marginalized. Um, so this is an overview of the talk. We're going to go through some of the similarities and differences between um, so HIV in, in the South and HIV in Southern Africa. Um, and we'll be looking at that uh, both from the, the history, uh, the present, and, and uh, the future and goals. Uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about stigma and then how do we get to where we're trying to go. So my journey, um, I was an engineer. I was working in Houston. I was looking actually for opportunities to, uh, to be sent to Malaysia, Singapore, um, in my engineering job, and God basically uh, grabbed me by the collar and pulled me out of what I was doing, pulled me out of the lifestyle I was living, um, and called me into medicine, uh, and called me to commit my life to Him. Um, and at that time, uh, He really revealed to me that uh, that He wanted me to to take care of people living with HIV and AIDS. Um, and so that was in Houston, Texas. So I quit my engineering job. I uh, to my med school prereqs uh, at the University of Houston, uh, and then I uh, uh, got into med school, praise God. Um, and so this picture is, is the Thomas Street Health Center in Houston. This is the public uh, HIV clinic in Houston, Texas. Um, and so I, during med school, I, I made it a point to try to get over to the Thomas Street Clinic as much as I could, which was not very much, but uh, really got to, to see firsthand um, and meet people living with HIV and see firsthand what, what care was like. Um, while we were in med school, my wife and I uh, got to go to Maua Methodist Hospital in Kenya, uh, our first time to Africa, uh, and just getting to see what what is uh, what does healthcare look like in Africa and in a fairly rural uh, mission hospital. Uh, we went back and 
uh, did residency in Atlanta. And so this is the Ponce de Leon Clinic, which was the is the big public HIV clinic in, in Atlanta. Uh, and I, I got to uh, spend time there um, during residency. I also got to go to Ethiopia and spent um, about a month uh, in Addis Ababa. I also got to visit um, the Mission Hospital in Wolai de Soto. Um, uh, also, while in, in residency, my wife and I got to go to the Global Missions Health Conference here. 2008, in fact, uh, 12 years ago. And that's where we, uh, uh, we first heard about Christ Community Health Services in Memphis. Uh, we also were exploring our uh, uh, options and exploring you know, where was God calling us to. Turns out uh, that God called us to uh, Lusaka, Zambia. Uh, and uh, I see the beautiful jacaranda tree there at the hospital. Um, but uh, where we were uh, both working in, in sort of more academic uh, roles. Uh, I was with Vanderbilt University. My wife was with uh, University of Alabama, Birmingham. Um, and uh, was taking care of patients at the University Teaching Hospital, where 50% of uh, adult inpatient uh, internal medicine admissions uh, were patients living with HIV, uh, mostly mostly patients with AIDS, um, where at the time uh, prevalence was uh, 16% of adults uh, had HIV in the country. Um, so we, we were in, in Zambia for five years, um, and then God called us uh, back to the States uh, to Christ Community Health Services, where we've been living uh, for the last six years. Um, this is the Fraser Health Center. We have uh, six health centers there, uh, each of them a, a patient center medical home uh, for including uh, for patients living with HIV and AIDS. Um, and I've, uh, where I'm now the chief clinical officer. So that's sort of been my journey. Um, uh, let's get into it a little bit. Uh, but so the number one difference, uh, and I think everyone knows this one, but uh, HIV is way more prevalent in, in East and Southern Africa than it is in the United States. So in, in Africa, there's 20.7 million people living with HIV. Uh, that's uh, two-thirds of the, of, the world, uh, of the world prevalence, or sorry, two-thirds of the, of the people living in the world are, are in East and Southern Africa. Um, the adult prevalence is 6.7%. Uh, compared to 0.5% in, in the United States. Um, 200,000 AIDS-related deaths per year in East and Southern Africa, uh, 13,000 in, in the United States. Now, that may be a difference, but the similarity, uh, first similarity, the highest incidence and prevalence of HIV is in the South. That's whether it's in the Southern United States or Southern Africa, as we know. And you just see here that really the... Uh, the Bible Belt is the HIV Belt in a lot of ways, uh, and, and you see the Southeast, and we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, when we talk about the church. Um, difference uh, in the history of, of as, as HIV developed in, in the United States, this was really uh, from the outset a, a gay uh, disease, right? Uh, that's not the case anymore, but still, uh, you see that over half of people living with HIV in the United States are uh, acquired from male-to-male -male sexual contact, um, and so it is just—it is still a huge part of our HIV epidemic, even though it is not—it uh, is by no means strictly a gay disease. But what you'll also see here is that the lifetime risk of being diagnosed with HIV 
for an African-American male uh, without using PrEP, it's uh, 50% lifetime risk. A Hispanic male, 25%, and white men, about 9%. Contrast that to the, the impact of homosexual transmission in Africa, where about 6% um, of patients acquired it through, through gay sex, um, uh, and 79% are, have no distinct risk factors other than, than being sexually active. The next difference is that, obviously, as we know, HIV has been a much bigger killer in Southern Africa than in the United States. You see here where uh, in the 90s and early 2000s, uh, <clears throat> HIV and AIDS uh, accounted for over 40% and in some cases up to 50, over 50% of uh, deaths in, in several uh, Southern African countries. Uh, you see Zimbabwe really was hit the worst in the early 90s. Uh, and then South Africa, Zambia, Mozambique, uh, Namibia. Uh, whereas in the United States, you see uh, at, at peak, um, HIV accounted for 3% of, of, of deaths in, the, uh, in 1995, just prior, to, uh, just prior to the introduction of highly active antiretroviral therapy. You'll see here as well, so another difference, when did ART become available? So we showed there that in the United States, ART became available in, uh, in 1996. Um, in Southern Africa, a different story, right? Uh, early 90s, uh, life expectancies were peaking. Um, and then you saw, due to the, the spread of AIDS, um, you saw that uh, more life expectancies plummeted in the in the 2000s, and uh, generally in most of these most countries, um, uh, the life expectancy really the nadir was was in the early 2000s. At which point, um, uh, we had international and and United States uh, intervention uh, with. Uh, funding to, to introduce medications for, uh, for and this is where we sort of get another difference which is also somewhat of a similarity is that in the United States um, funding comes certainly from the US government through HRSA and generally the Ryan White program which many of you are I'm sure familiar with um, in southern Africa it's also the United States government funds a lot of it but uh, through the uh, through PEPFAR the US president's emergency plan for AIDS relief which was introduced by George W. Bush, uh, but also uh, in addition to U.S. government funding, there's Global Fund, um, <clears throat> uh, which is a multilateral uh, initiative, as well as uh, other other. PEPFAR, just showing the, the countries that PEPFAR um, supports, um, but the bulk of their funding goes to uh, Southern Africa. And as you see here, uh, just the, the funding sources, so um, uh, a significant chunk, uh, so the majority is, is certainly domestic, and that, that proportion has grown. Um, so in, in low- and middle-income countries, the, the countries themselves have been funding more of this, but you still do see a, a U.S. bilateral uh, fund, um, support, which is, is PEPFAR mainly, uh, and then Global Fund there, as well as other international um, support. Um, and again, so the, the PEPFAR really uh, uh, intervened uh, in the early 2000s and has, has been 
you know, active now for uh, nearly 20 years. Um, so the similarities. So, so praise God that the uh, through PEPFAR and through uh, national prioritization um, that uh, treatment and uh, prevention uh, has has really um, become more widespread, uh, widely available in, in in Southern Africa. And so you see that PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, uh, is now utilized, um, starting to become widely utilized in Southern Africa, uh, as well as in the United States, certainly. Uh, but one of the uh, uh, one of the other similarities is underutilization still, right? So if you see in the in the United States, um, uh, individually PrEP is half as as prevalent uh, as it is in uh, the Northeast. Uh, despite the fact that the majority of new infections are occurring in the South. And so uh, PrEP is, is underutilized. And, and man, if you're, uh, if you're living in the U.S. or you're living in Africa, uh, really think about using, you know, offering PrEP to your patients. Um, yes, we're not trying to encourage a lifestyle, um, but as with, with contraception, for, you know, I think uh, we want to protect our patients, you know, we want to counsel them and, and try to encourage them to uh, to live a healthy and and you know pure lifestyle, but uh, we also want to protect them in any way we can, right? So I definitely encourage prep. Um, uh, so another similarity, and this is a, a huge difference from where we were even seven or eight years ago when I was in when I was in Zambia. We were just starting to get some of the newer medications. Um, they were still weren't widely available to to everyone in the country. We we're still uh, using a lot of older protease inhibitor-based regimens like Kaletra. Um, we were still using uh, a lot of uh, efavirenz-based regimens. Uh, and what you see now, uh, even, even though at the time integrase inhibitors were, were widely available in the U.S., they, they were very limited use uh, for treatment failure in, in, in Southern Africa. But what you're seeing now is first-line regimen, first regimens in uh in Zambia are, are actually maybe better than what we have uh, available in the U.S. because in the U.S. Um, we don't have a dolutegravir-based um, uh, co-formulated regimen, um, uh, at least not a three-drug regimen. Um, and so, which so uh, integrase inhibitors, in particular dolutegravir and and probably bictegravir, are the most potent uh, antiretrovirals that we have. So, in general. Uh, you always want an integrase inhibitor um, in your uh, uh, in your treatment regimen, and in general, uh, dolutegravir is that integrase inhibitor that you that you want. And so, uh, through PEPFAR and then through the um, uh, U.S. Um, pharmaceutical companies allowing international uh, or relaxing their patents for international. Um, uh, manufacturing, uh, what you've seen is um, potent three-drug three, three combination regimens available in, in Southern Africa and other developing countries that are not available yet in the United States. So um, uh, the dolotegravir, tenofovir, emtricitabine, um, and dolotegravir, tenofovir, lamivudine combinations have uh, uh, made it possible to really provide uh, first-line treatment uh, throughout the world. 
So the treatment is basically the same. The, um, the only real difference at this point in treatment is genotype testing. So in the United States, genotype testing, uh, which is resistance testing, is available for all new patients, uh, and it's also when, when treatment failure is suspected. But in Zambia, genotype testing is only available for patients with treatment failure. Now, viral load testing in both, both settings is, is really every three months. But uh, in Zambia, they don't do genotype testing um, because of the cost unless, unless someone's failing treatment. Um, now, another similarity, though, same-day start, right? So uh, this was not the case when I was in, in Zambia, and it was not the case in the United States um, at the time either. But over the last uh, three to four years, um, we've really seen more and more evidence that shows that someone comes in and you diagnose them with HIV. If you can, if you have access to continuity care for them, whether it's in your clinic or through a referral system, the best practice at this time is the day you diagnose them, you start them on treatment. And if you do that, they're going to be 24% more likely to be on treatment in 90 days. They're going to have a much more rapid uh, uh, response, a much more rapid uh, time to virologic suppression um, within six months as opposed to 18 months, and it improves retention and care at 12 months because if someone walks in the door and they're diagnosed, um, rather than walking out in despair, uh, they can frequently be walking out with, in hope, knowing that they're getting their treatment. Um, it also showed reduced mortality in a Haitian study. So in, in developing nations, uh, it may actually save lives to get them started uh, same day. And this is just the same day, uh, same day start protocol in the Zambian national guidelines. This was developed by a friend of mine, Lloyd Malenga, uh, who, who uh, headed that, that committee. Uh, but you see that there are... Uh, uh, there are reasons that they might not start on the same day if someone, uh, um, or they might at least um, want to do further screening before before starting that day. Um, in particular, if someone is, is acutely ill or has has some sign of uh, of opportunistic infection, then you would not start them on that day. So another similarity then, looking to the future, um, so our 2030 goals, um, really these have been adopted um, worldwide, um, and so in the, with, with some mild variations, but um, DHHS uh, has, um, in the United States, has um, put a lot of funds into uh, ending the HIV epidemic. Um, and uh, really trying to support prevention efforts to reduce HIV infections in the U.S. by 90% um, by 2030. Uh, worldwide, UNAIDS, uh, their fast-track program, uh, would like to reduce new infections from 770,000 to 200,000 per year. So it's not quite 90%, but still aggressive uh, prevention efforts to reduce new infections. In Zambia, the goal, they said, was to eliminate new HIV infections by 2030. This is just a in a statement by the uh, by the Minister of Health, um, probably a little bit uh, uh, more aggressive than uh, than what's feasible, but but again, the, the the goals here are to by 2030 to really uh, uh, dramatically drastically reduce the number of new infections and and 
new cases of A. So in the U.S., here's here's the approach. Um, so again, uh, shooting for a 75% reduction in new infections by 2025 and a 90% reduction by 2030. Um, so trying to improve diagnosis. So really stretching the, the diagnostics uh, and trying to reach every every person and, and try to reach them as early as possible after infection. Then treatment, so uh, trying to treat people as soon as they are diagnosed uh, and trying to sustain viral suppression. Uh, prevention, so new HIV trans preventing new HIV transmissions um, through syringe service programs, uh, PrEP, uh, and other proven interventions, and then to respond uh, quickly to outbreaks. So when they see an outbreak, like like the one, sort of the most notorious one was in southern Indiana. Uh, uh, it's been almost almost 10 years ago now, but uh, when they had that uh, that outbreak um, that was related to, to uh, injection drug use. So being able to respond to that and recognizing that any, any community with high injection drug use um, uh, usage um, is a, a potential uh, high-risk uh, area for outbreak. And so, so these are the priority areas. So um, these are areas with, with high incidence of, of HIV, um, certain states that you see, mostly in the south, and then certain counties, uh, including mine and Memphis. Um, and so really trying to uh, put a lot of effort into HIV prevention, particularly in these areas. And what we have here is the uh, another similarity of the 90-90-90 goal. Um, so UNAIDS developed this goal, uh, I think over 10 years ago, uh, with the goal to get uh, to 90% of people um, knowing their diagnosis, 90% um, of people diagnosed being on treatment, and 90% of those on treatment being virally suppressed. Uh, they call this the 90-90-90 goal, uh, which was uh, actually a goal for 2020. Um, uh, and does anybody want to guess uh, who performs better at this? Um, Southern Africa or the Southern U.S.? So actually it was uh, a draw. <laughs> so if you see here, um, comparing this is comparing East and Southern Africa with the United States as a whole, and you'll see uh, 86 to 87 uh, percent of people with HIV knowing their diagnosis. These are these are estimates. Um, uh, 83 to 88 uh, percent on treatment, and 85 to 90 percent virally suppressed. So what you see is um, in the United States we're a little bit better at getting people onto treatment, um, but uh, they're actually once on treatment. They do a better job in, in Southern Africa of, of getting people virally suppressed. Uh, and I have my, my theories, but I think uh, that's related to the stigma um, that um, uh, the stigma that uh, leads a lot of people in the, in the U.S. Um, to, to not take their medications. Um, And I would say that um, the southern United States is even worse off than the rest of the U.S. And so uh, this is just an example, uh, a slide I borrowed from a friend of mine, Jennifer Pepper, formerly at the Shelby County Health Department. Uh, but just comparing Memphis to Seattle um, and just see 
uh, higher, much higher African American population, uh, much higher uh, percent below the poverty line, uh, higher percent uninsured, higher percent who have not completed high school, much lower percent who have a um, bachelor's degree um, or higher, uh, much lower uh, minimum wage. Um, and then uh, you see that this was three years ago. Seattle had met its 90-90-90 goals, uh, whereas in Memphis, uh, not knowing the first not two numbers, but the, the third number was 75. And so just highlighting that uh, if, if Southern Africa and the United States um, are comparable, then we're actually probably doing a worse job in the southern U.S. than they are in Southern Africa. So we have a lot of work to do, and I think we're uh, we're really, uh, with the Ending the HIV Epidemic Grant uh, funds, really trying to increase testing um, and really try to uh, uh, not just prevent, but also to st strengthen our, uh, our care and treatment arms. Another uh, similarity, something that we see in, in both uh, Africa and the United States, is that stigma kills. Um, deaths uh, due to HIV are preventable. Uh, and I think we would prevent almost all of them, if not for stigma. And it, uh, this is Psalm 38, is, is the psalm that I call the, the, the psalm of HIV stigma. You know what I long for, Lord. You hear my every sigh. My heart beats wildly, my strength fails, and I am going blind. My loved ones and friends stay away, fearing my disease. Even my own family stands at a distance. This, this psalm, when, every time I read it, it hurts me because I know people. Um, and I know a man who, uh, when he told his mom he was HIV infected, she said, I'm so disappointed, and she turned her back on him. Uh, this same man uh, hides his meds in the closet um, under a duffel bag, under a pile of books, under his dirty clothes and reaches in there every day to get get his medication. Uh, I know a, a woman who um, whose mom told her aunt that she was infected. Her aunt told her cousin. Her cousin posted on Facebook, and then when she went to a, a family funeral, no one would sit next to her. A few people were sympathetic, but everybody knew no one, no one wanted to touch her. Uh, even my own family stands at a distance. In Africa, many this is what it looks like. And this, this photo has been used in uh, various educational materials throughout in, in multiple PEPFAR countries, PEPFAR-supported countries in Africa. Um, uh, but what's particularly um, characteristic here is that it is uh, a female uh, family member who's being shunned. Right, because the stigma in, in Southern Africa uh, tends to be more towards females uh, and more towards them because uh, if they have HIV, they're viewed as promiscuous or uh, they're, they're tainted, um, whereas the, the men, it's, the, the stigma is not as, as great. There's still stigma, certainly, um, uh, but uh, the stigma is even greater uh, for women. Uh, so I'll pause here just for a second, just talk a little bit about stigma. Um, does anybody know where, uh, from a biblical perspective, where, where, where does the term stigma come from? So 
So stigma is a mark of disgrace that sets a person apart. It's a visible sign or characteristic of a disease. Right? The stigma or stigmata are the marks corresponding to those left on Jesus' body by the crucifixion. Stigma, it's a mark, right? And, and uh, it was a, those were marks uh, meant to be marks of shame, right? Um, crucifixion, the most shameful way to die. But we know that our Lord and Savior uh, took those marks, uh, took that shame, took it all upon himself so that we might live um, lives of freedom and redemption. Um, but that stigma, those those marks of disgrace, he took he took on the stigma for uh, uh, for people suffering from HIV as well. Uh, just a sign of the, that that stigma is, just, is is even HIV criminalization laws. So we don't have laws. You know, if you have if you have the flu and and accidentally spread it, or you spread it, um, there's no laws against that, right? There's no laws. You're not going to be incarcerated for that. But in the United States and in other countries. Um, it's a criminal act uh, if you have HIV and someone and you spread it, um, which contributes to stigma, right? If I uh, if it's criminal for me to know my HIV status and then to to uh, pass HIV to someone else, then you know what? Maybe I just shouldn't know it. Why? Well, I don't want to get tested then because if I if I happen to have it, then you know that that will that will make me liable, uh, and so. Um, uh, the HIV criminalization laws are yet another part of, uh, of uh, another factor contributing to the stigma, stigma around it. Um, so here's a similarity, another similarity that um, uh, for our past, our present, and our future, the church response is critical, right? So in the past, the church response was critical as in criticizing, right? The church response was criticizing those who were affected. So you look back into the 1980s, where newspaper articles saying AIDS is the wrath of God, or it's homosexual diseases threaten American families, right? Um, you know, AIDS is God's curse on a homosexual life, right? Uh, even as far as into 2005, um, the church response in South Africa was described as a series of notable exceptions against the backdrop of silence, right? So if it wasn't condemnation, then it was silence and lack of support, right? So the church response has been critical, criticizing. Um, but you remember we talked about the uh, HIV prevalence and incidence is highest, is greatest, really in, in areas where the church is is most prevalent, right? We talked about the Bible Belt, right? In the United States, HIV is is hugely prevalent uh, in the in the Bible Belt in Southern Africa, where you have your Christian countries, right? Yeah. And so the church response is critical because the church is where HIV is, and the church needs to be uh, um, in the forefront. And and the church, you know, God wants to use the church not just to to focus on prevention, because yes, prevention is important. Yes, the ABCs are important: abstinence, be faithful, condomize. But the church needs to be needs to be present um, to address the stigma. The church needs to be present to show the compassion. The church needs to be present to 
facilitate the treatment and care. Praise God it is. Praise God it is. So in the 80s and the early 90s, that wasn't so much the case, right? There, there were maybe some churches here or there that were uh, that were part of the the initial response to helping people, but uh, and certainly you had churches setting up hospices and things like that, even even in the 80s. But by and large, we had a, a, a huge degree of condemnation coming from the church. But praise God um, that you see more and more the church responding, right? So uh, in in the United States. You're seeing black churches joining a gospel of AIDS to battle HIV. You're seeing in, in Detroit the, the gospel against AIDS. You're seeing how churches fight the stigma. You're seeing churches uh, like Innovation Church in Memphis uh, doing uh, uh, HIV-related um, dramas in church uh, to try to uh, highlight the need for compassion and, and to, to combat stigma. Uh, and in, in, in Africa, you're seeing... Uh, the Church Health Association of Zambia, or the, uh, uh, or the uh, Christian Health Alliance of Kenya, or you're seeing Catholic Relief Services helping to um, uh, facilitating HIV care and treatment uh, in multiple countries. Uh, in, in my church in Zambia, the uh, St. Columbus Presbyterian Church, which was a member of the Uniting Presbyterian Church in Southern Africa, and uh, what we, what the Uniting Presbyterian Church of Southern Africa said was that every congregation had to have an HIV committee. Every church had to have an HIV and AIDS committee, um, which it, to address how do we respond to the HIV epidemic, whether that was through uh, compassionate programs for people living with HIV, whether that was for um, Addressing stigma, whether that was for, um, you know, being a part of care and treatment, you know, whatever it was, uh, each com each church had to have a committee to to actively uh, address this epidemic. So where do we go from here? So we have to build on the advances that have been made. We have to continue existing partnerships. Um, we have to see the ending the HIV epidemic vision to completion, right? So, um, uh, the, the, we as the, the body of Christ uh, need to be out front uh, in doing what we can uh, and really, what we really need to do is combat stigma. Uh, you know, in the United States, I, I say that uh, nobody dies of AIDS anymore. People die of stigma because every every AIDS-related death in the United States is preventable. In Southern Africa, the same thing. Uh, I mean, I think the the healthcare infrastructure is maybe not as you know it's not as advanced. Uh, it, it doesn't. Uh, uh, it, it may not be as accessible, but but really it is right because I think. Um, uh, between uh, national health programs as well as PEPFAR funding, really the um, the availability of HIV uh, medications for treatment and and infrastructure for care has really expanded, and and so uh, 
AIDS-related deaths uh, these days are, are mainly stigma-related deaths, right? Stigma leading to late uh, late diagnosis, stigma leading to uh, lack of initiation and treatment, uh, stigma-related uh, um, uh, treatment non-adherence. Um, so it is up to us as the church, it is up to us as Christian healthcare providers, uh, physicians, health nurses, healthcare provi- healthcare workers who are uh, looked up to by the, commu- the communities where we, we live and serve. Uh, it is up to us to uh, to stand up against the stigma, right? So whether that's going into churches um, to uh, talk about HIV, to to address the stigma, whether it's uh, lobbying for for changes in in HIV st- stigmatizing laws. Um, uh, combating that stigma, uh, whether it's it's partnering in the communities, um, but you know I think uh, as as healthcare professionals in our communities and in our churches, and you know I think we as much as we need to be um, uh, speaking out for healthy lifestyles, you know as much as we need to be speaking out for uh, healthy diets and exercise, but we need to be speaking. Uh, speaking out to combat the stigma around HIV, and, and thank, you know I've had the opportunity to do that at, at uh, uh, you know a number of churches in in the Memphis area, um, and encourage you all to 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 do this. Um, this is a quote from Michael Cidebe, uh who's the um, uh, minister of health at Mali now, uh, was the executive director of UNAIDS at the time. He said this: he "said Whenever AIDS has won, stigma, shame, distrust, discrimination, and apathy was on its side." Every time AIDS has been defeated, it has been because of trust, openness, dialogue between individuals and communities, family support, human solidarity, and the human perseverance to find new paths and solutions. I think these, uh, this statement is true whether he's talking about Southern Africa or whether he's talking about the Southern, the US, the southern United States. Um, uh, we still have a huge problem you know, in, in, in the South, in, in Tennessee and Mississippi, we still have a huge problem with openness. We still have a huge problem with dialogue. Um, we still have a huge problem with family support. Uh, these things are needed. Um, you know, I think uh, the the conversation has been longer and louder in in Southern Africa. I feel like, and so I think they've uh, they've done a, a a better job, I think, of effect of of addressing the stigma than we have in in the Southern U.S. Um, and so we still have a ways to go to reach this. Um, but this is just a summary slide just to show you kind of the, some of the things we've talked about today, some of the similarities, some of the differences. Um,